Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. I appreciate you letting me take a break over the past two weeks as we have talked about the roles and responsibilities of elders and uh, what God has called them to do. I want to remind you uh, just very quickly, uh, this week on Friday, uh, we will sort of conclude the nominating process. And what that means is, uh, after that, you're welcome to nominate, but we're going to consider from Friday moving forward the names that we have received up until this point. And so our elders intend uh, on meeting uh, not this week but the next, and then we will begin our process to discern uh, what the Lord uh, would have us do. I do want to remind you uh, that in the bylaws, as stated, uh, these men who are rotating off, they just rotate off for one year, and then they come back on per the bylaw. And so they are in no way uh, vacating that position. They're just sort of, uh, if you think about it in the terms of similar to what our deacons currently do. Uh, that is the best way that I know uh, how to describe that uh, in a way that uh, hopefully we can all uh, seek some understanding. So if you would follow along with me, beginning in verse 24, Paul writes in Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. This mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. As many of you know, uh, today, 21 years ago today, as a matter of fact, we remember, many of us, where we were, what we were doing when we saw the tragic events of September 11th unfold. We watched at times with horror and shock and awe as uh, we processed what was going on before us. We, we watched as men and women ran into those burning buildings only never to return. We saw the heartache. We saw the suffering and the pain that was inflicted in those moments. And, and even to this day, as we remember 21 years ago, it still elicits emotions and, and feelings. Many of us remember exactly where we were 21 years ago when uh, we went to the television screen and then began to watch as we began to hear uh, whether it was on TV or, or on the radio. And we are a people that is acquainted with visually seeing suffering and hardship. It's one thing to suffer in those terms and in those contexts, but, but yet there are times in which God will call his people to suffer for his namesake, to suffer for his gospel, to suffer for his glory. And, and there's always a reason in the midst of that. Us having a, an understanding of a, of a theology, if you will, of suffering and, and how that informs our own hearts and our own personal walks. Because you see, it's not a matter uh, if you will ever suffer, if you have suffered. The, the question before you is at some point in your life, you will endure hardships and tribulations. You will experience suffering in your own life. And at times you will watch those that are closest to you and, and near you, you will watch them suffer as well. 
Well, the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to the church in Colossae, he finds himself in the midst of great suffering. In fact, he finds himself in the, in the midst of a jail cell where he had been in prison for sharing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus to a world that desperately needed it. And he was misunderstood and, and misquoted and, and people maligned him eventually to the point where he was arrested and he sits in that jail cell and he writes his heart out as he shows and shares his affection for a group of people whom he had never actually even met up until this point. That one of his disciples had, had gone and uh, as a disciple and a follower of, of Christ, listening to Paul and submitting to Paul, they, they plant this church in Colossae. And, and as Paul begins to hear about the good works of this church as he sits in that jail cell, he reminds them of a couple of things that I think are important for us. And when we come to verse 24 here in Colossians 1, it's, it's almost as if we should be in this moment taken aback because perhaps none of us, I know in my 40 years of age, I have never met one single person who would say emphatically, as Paul says, now I rejoice in all of my sufferings. Who says something like that? It's almost meant to elicit a, a feeling of incredulity in our own hearts. How can someone say that there is joy in their life, joy in their midst when they are being unfairly targeted and unfairly persecuted? Yet Paul says, as simple as it is, beginning in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For your sake. I rejoice in, in what is going on before me. We oftentimes, I think, dehumanize Paul. We have elevated him, certainly, as a great man who, who did great things for the glory of God. And perhaps outside of Jesus himself, one of the most astute theological minds that had ever existed. But Paul was flesh and blood just like you and I. Paul undoubtedly loved many of the same things that, that we love. Perhaps we could say that Paul, he loved his freedom. He, he loved the creature comforts that often come. And, but in this moment, it seems as if he was one of these pious men that was just so consumed by Scripture that, that he was oblivious to all that was going on around him. And I think in order to get to this place and this posture in our own lives, there are a couple of things that we must understand when it comes to suffering. For us to journey to the place where we as Paul can say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. First and foremost, Paul understood he rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew his sufferings brought good to the church. He rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew that his sufferings brought good to the church. He rejoiced because his sufferings were for their sake. Now, now what does this mean? Well, well, what it means undoubtedly is simply this, that as the church watched and as the church walked with Paul, even from a distance, and they see his faithfulness to the gospel, they see that he is a man that is unwavering in his principle. They see that he is a man of, of deep conviction, walking faithfully with Christ, and he is faithful unto the end. They see his perseverance and his tenacity. They see his grit in all things, and so they watch him. And so Paul says, in essence, you watch me as I suffer and see my hardship because I suffer for you. I suffer for your sake. And in doing so, it brings good to the church because Paul then gives us an example of what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
Secondly, I think what Paul teaches us in this verse, rejoicing in sufferings, is the understanding that sacrificial living is being willing to let go of something you care about for something you care about even more. There were undoubtedly things in Paul's life that that he held closely to his chest. There were undoubtedly things in Paul's life that that he wanted and wished for and that he hoped for that, that were never fulfilled this side of eternity, yet Paul labored for something bigger and greater than that. And he was willing to, to let go of things in this life, even good things perhaps, for some things that were even greater. And so this is what brings him to this posture of deepening dependence upon Christ. That he valued Christ more than his circumstance in the moment. That he desired to be faithful and obedient of all things, and he was willing to let go of certain things in this life. He was willing to be slandered and maligned. He was willing to be called an apostate. He was willing to be shipwrecked and snake beaten or eaten. He was willing to be beaten by prison guards. All of these things because he valued the glory of our God even more. But he also understood something else, thirdly and perhaps most importantly. In order to get to the place where he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, he understood that you rejoice in suffering when you love what you gain through suffering more than what you are giving up. He understood that for him to live is is Christ, is gain. He understood that all the things that he would walk away from in this path of obedience that God had set him on, he, he knew that the reward was far greater than anything that he would have to say no to in this life. And so he looks at the church in whom he deeply loves and he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How can a man get to a place where he would understand that he would give up something, knowing he would suffer a great deal and believing that it was all worth it to the very end. As many of you know, my wife and I have been blessed with five children. And I was present at every childbirth, at every child that came into this world. And and I watched at times the agony and the pain that my wife felt. And, And all I can think of in those moments was not a lot of empathy, but just thank God I'm not a woman in this, in this moment. And I remember the hardship of even our, our first son who was born on, on September the 1st and, and my wife having to endure that first pregnancy for the first time in the heat of the summer in one of the hottest summers. And I remember the, the agony and the sleepless nights and all the things that she endured. And, and I remember each child and all the difficulties that came along in childbirth. But if I were to bring my wife up here right now in this moment and say, but babe, I know it was hard and, and I know it was difficult, but would you would you do it all over again? I know without a doubt emphatically, Haley would absolutely say it was worth every single hardship. It was worth every single heartache. It was worth everything all the way until the very end. And this is the heart behind Paul, knowing what he would endure and knowing what he would suffer. Yet he says it is all worth it, totally worth it to the very end. He goes on in verse 24 and he says, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. One New Testament scholar that I read this week said this is actually one of the most hotly contested and debated passages in all of the New Testament for New Testament scholars. 
What could Paul possibly mean by simply saying, I am the one, the apostle Paul, a man, flesh and blood, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And some through the ages have used this verse to to minimize the atonement and the sufficiency of the death of Christ. That perhaps his death wasn't sufficient and so now it's being fulfilled through Paul or perhaps through others and, and we would reject that outright. Jesus has done everything necessary and required to save and to reconcile and to redeem his people today. His death was absolutely 100% sufficient for you and me in this moment. It was absolutely sufficient for us in all of our deepest and darkest needs. But what does he mean in the midst of this? In another sense, it means simply this idea that this saving act of Christ is not complete ultimately until we hear about it. Until the good news gets to the people that are far from God, how can it be good news for them? Martin Luther famously said at one point, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. And so what Paul is saying here in this moment, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, for the sake of his church. Christ's sufferings are not fully complete in the fullest sense until you hear and until you respond. And what Paul says is, if it takes my suffering, my imprisonment to bring that to pass, I, Paul, will gladly go through all sorts of affliction and hardship and toil for your sake and for the sake of the church. You see, in one sense, We have been called to sit in the midst of this world's sufferings and rejoice at the world and the joy to come. We sit in the midst of a culture today that that many of them mourned the events 21 years ago on September the 11th. They are well acquainted themselves with with sorrow and and hardship. And and we have been called to come alongside those men and women, particularly those that are far from him and, and to be someone that they can run to and that we can console and that we can minister the gospel to. We have been called to sit in the midst of difficulties within this world. Yet in the midst of those difficulties, God has said, rejoice at the joy that is coming. Because this time and this earth, this ultimately is not your home and it's not my home. We we live for another home. We live for another place. We we long for another kingdom to be fulfilled, not just in heaven, but here on earth as well. Verse 25, Paul goes on and he says of this church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. Now, some translations render that word stewardship there in verse 25. They'll say a word and use the word commission. And I think the word commission perhaps better portrays it, but but both of these words are, are emphasizing the same thing. In essence, God has entrusted Paul in this moment, just as he has entrusted you. And he has given you something The keys to the kingdom, if you will, the gospel of Jesus, that those who are far from God, that through repentance and faith can come to know God, 
God has entrusted you with this message. He has made you a steward. He gave it to you so that you can give it to someone else. That you would be his hands and that you would be his feet. That you would leave this place today sent out as a, as a people that have been commissioned by God with the heart for the same things that God has a heartbeat for. To see the lost saved. To see those who, who don't know him redeemed and, and reconciled to our Heavenly Father through Jesus. To go to the uttermost parts of the world on mission. To go to the dark places, to let God call and, and spur our hearts, to, to go to the hard places that, that no one else wants to go, to the darkest places here on this earth, and to go and to be the hands and to be the feet of Jesus. He calls us to go to those places, just as he calls you to go down the street in your neighborhood and, and to befriend your neighbor. You know, the one that that doesn't know the Lord or perhaps the one that you don't know in this moment if they know the Lord or not. And he calls you to be an agent of, of reconciliation in that moment, to be a testimony of faithfulness, to embody the presence of God of which, as Paul says, I became this minister according to the commission and the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Verse 26, this mystery, it's been hidden for ages hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. What once we didn't understand and what we once didn't know now has been fulfilled through the person of Jesus. And that our, our ministry now is to make this mystery that is no longer a mystery, it is to make it known to those that don't know him. To them, verse 27, God chose to make known. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I find that to be one of the most compelling and encouraging verses in this text this morning. You see, the mystery is not just about who Christ is, but this mystery that has now been transformed and applied deep within your hearts. This mystery, Christ, he is now in you. The hope of, of all glory, the hope of all things, this Christ is now in you. The hope amongst the Gentiles that was mysterious for all the ages and all the generations now has been revealed through Jesus. And now this Christ, he takes up residence, if you will, through your union. And, and now you and him, you work together to fulfill the calling and the purpose that he has for your life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I ask you this question not out of condemnation, but out of challenge. I think when I ask questions that I'm about to ask, sometimes you, perhaps my intention is not to condemn in this moment. And, and more often than not, when we feel condemned, oftentimes when we come before his word, most of the time it's because we, we are perhaps not doing what, what God has called us to do. But when we are walking faithfully with him, we hear statements like this and we don't feel condemned. We, we rather feel affirmed. And the statement is just simply this, how are you living your life currently in this moment, in your workplaces, in your jobs, in your homes, amongst your families? How are you living in, in such a way that when people interact with you and they come into your presence and they see you, they, they see the hope of glory, Christ in you? 
How, how, would, how would you be distinguished from any other good moral person? How would they know that, that, that you're any different, that, that this mystery that, that has been hidden for ages and generations is now in you and, and that this is now the hope of glory, Christ at work in you? How are you living in such a way that, that people that are far from him, they, they know that something's different, something's changed, that you don't act the way the world does, you don't speak the way the world does, you don't live the way the world does, you don't spend the way the world does, that your heart beats for something other than this world. It's a real challenge, I think, for, for many of us, including myself, to not fall into the trap of, of just insulating myself around other believers that affirm and believe the same thing as I do. For, for Paul in this moment, what he is emphatically saying to the church is that our mission, the thing that God has commissioned us to as we love and as we care for one another in the body, as we pursue being a healthy church, we then take that health and we turn it around and we go and we go find people and we do things and we come up with events and programs and, and whatever those things are. We minister in the context of our small groups for the purpose of those who have yet to respond to the news that Jesus saves. That because it is well with my soul, it can be well with your soul. Not because of any magic words that are said or proclaimed, but because solely and for the reason that Christ has come and Christ has been crucified and Christ redeems and he reconciled. I've told you the story before from this pulpit. I want to remind you of it, of the young man named William Borden. He was the heir apparent to the Borden Milk Company. And he walked away from fortune. He walked away from influence. He left all the things that he, that he knew and held dear. And he, he journeyed over to Egypt as a missionary. And he was only there a few short months when he contracted meningitis and he died. And the story goes that on his deathbed, a friend came to see him and just before he died, a few hours, asked him if, if he saw this, this whole thing as, as coming to Egypt with millions of dollars back at home and influence and, and even fame and perhaps fortune, if he saw coming to Egypt for just a few short months and contracting meningitis, if he saw it as a mistake. And Borden, as the story goes, famously responds as he writes down on a sheet of paper, he says, I have no regrets. A young man that was compelled by a mission and vision to be who God wanted him to be, to be who God had called him to be and to stick by that calling that, that in that moment, his, his cause and his purpose was to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. For Paul goes on in verse 28 and he says, we proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, for the purpose that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, for this I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In verse 29, I, perhaps the most comforting word in verse 29 is that word toil. And I think so often we, we believe sometimes that ministry, in particular people, that we labor for the gospel for the easy people in this life. Yet Paul, in this moment, he says, I toil. In other words, I, I struggle. 
In other words, he knew what it was like to, to deal with difficult people. He knew what it was like to deal with unreasonable people at times. And, and it was toilsome. It was hard at times. It was difficult at times. Yet he understood that in the midst of all of that toil, in the midst of all of that turmoil, the hope of glory was laid before his eyes and he did not relent. In him, we proclaim him. We warn everyone, we teach everyone with all wisdom for this sole purpose, that you may be presented mature in Christ. I think that's a compelling statement to make before any church leader, before any ministry leader. Does this thing in which we are going to do, does this program in which we are going to implement, does it help conform our people? Does it help conform you so that you may be presented mature in Christ? And if it does, then, then let's wholeheartedly get behind it. If it does, let's wholeheartedly make this our cause and make this our calling. But if we can't, in the midst of that, answer that question, how does this help us present one another mature in Christ? It's an interesting and compelling paradigm, but frankly, it's the only paradigm in Scripture. Because this is the goal that each and every one of us would grow in our faith, nurtured in our understanding, walking faithfully with God, closer with God, in union with God, listening to His Spirit, walking in wisdom in the black and the white spaces and, and even in the gray spaces so that we would be presented mature and perfect in Christ before our God. Today, I want to end with these thoughts before us, two really concluding challenges for us to think about in our time of response. First and foremost, I think what is applicable for us this morning as a church is where and how are you today filling up Christ's afflictions? Where and how today? In other words, how, how are you using the, the time that God has given you? How are you using the, the talents that God has given you, the gifts that he has given you? To, how are you using those to serve the church? How are you using those to see people that are far from him come to know Christ? How are you using your time and, and your talents and, and your resources? How are you using the money that God has, has given you? Someone asked me a, a compelling question this past week. And he was a man of considerable means, and we were wrestling with the old question that he had before me, how much tithe should a tithe be? And I said, well, truthfully, if you're going to go by Old Testament standards, it falls somewhere in the range of 30 to 32%. He said, well, I've never heard that. And I said, well, if you add up all the offerings that the Jews were required in the Old Testament, time in and time again, it had added up to about 32%, give or take, of, of their income. So if we're going to be the most biblical, we'll just start there. But, but I want to let you off the hook a little bit because uh, God says that he loves a cheerful giver and we give out of the overflow of our hearts. And so uh, to not send you in, a, in the course of a panic. And, and I, I, I said in answering this question, perhaps there's a better question to ask before you. I said, have you, have you ever considered not what's the bare minimum I'm supposed to give to fill up Christ's afflictions and to be faithful to him and to be obedient to him? But how about asking this question? Why, why would God give you such a considerable means to make an income and a living? 
Why would he allow you to, to grow wealth in, in, in this context and in this sense? And why would he allow you to grow it quite significantly? What would be his, his reason behind that? And then the second question and follow-up is, if, if you believe that, he, that he's done that for a reason, that it's, it's his blessing on, on your life, now the question is, what do you do with that wealth? And how do you use it for his kingdom and, and for his glory and, and for his namesake? How do you apply this in the context of he gave it not just to you, but he gave it for others? And how do you use it to impact people for the glory in the, in, of his name? And he said, I'll have to think about that. And I said, it's good to think deeply about that. It's good to consider that question deeply. Not only do we ask in conclusion, where and how are we filling up Christ's afflictions? But secondly, I think the more obvious question is, are we stewarding what God has given you for him? I don't just mean financial resources. I mean time. I mean gifts that he's, he's given you. He's given some of you incredible gifts of, of empathy and, and mercy. How do you apply that, that empathy in the context of the local church? He's made some of you extremely merciful and, and nurturing. How do you apply that mercy and how do you apply that nurturing spirit in the context of the local church to care for the people that are around you? He's made some of you wise beyond your years. You see things four, five, six steps ahead of everyone else. How, how has he given you that discernment to use for the local body? He has given you, some of you, the gift of encouragement and, and a heart for prayer. How are you using that for the gift of, to this local body and to enrich the kingdom that God is building? Not of Travis, but his kingdom on earth that he is building here, right here in Fort Worth, Texas. Right here at 800 West Berry Street at Travis Avenue Baptist Church. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the word that you give us in the book of Colossians through the Apostle Paul, that you have made us right. Those who were once alienated before you, you have reconciled us to yourself. And so Father, we make it our aim as Paul does in verse 28, to proclaim you, to warn everyone, to teach everyone with kindness, with compassion, to be full of wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, for this we struggle, for this is our aim. With all your energy, so powerfully at work within us. But we ask these things in the name of Christ and God's people said,